Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So what is and what should be the role of specialized military units in combating terrorism? When we look at this country, and we must safeguard our country as well, we're no more immune than anyone else. We do have an additional opportunity, though, and we're going to speak about that with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, JTF2, Canada's Counterterrorism Special Forces Unit, and uh, what JTF2 can do that many others cannot, as far as the law is concerned, in their individual countries is JTF2 is able to operate inside Canada as well as outside our borders. Colonel Day has told us this in the past. Colonel Day, good to have you back with us. And, and what are you detecting when you look at what's going on? You see London last night. Two weeks ago, it was Manchester. Prior to that, it was London again. And we have the international terror attacks as well. Are these attacks on a steady pattern of increase? Are you detecting something? Yes, good afternoon, Roy. Um, yeah, as we've talked about in, in the past, I think many times, uh, what we're seeing is just a continue, continued low boil in the background of disenfranchised individuals that will continue, quite honestly, to exploit Western society's freedoms. And, and this is not something that is going to go away anytime in, in the, over the short term, for, for sure. We're going to see more of this, there's no doubt in my mind. And what would you be doing now if you were directing security in London and in the UK? What would you be doing? And I spoke earlier with, uh, with our global news correspondent in, uh, in London just a few minutes ago. And I brought up the issue that we have returning fighters, British citizens who went to uh, Syria and signed up and fought alongside uh, ISIS, right back members of ISIS, and then they return home, and they still have that ideology probably even more firmly entrenched. So if you're in charge of security in London and the UK, and you're looking at preventing these sorts of situations in Canada, what are you doing? Well, it's a great question, Roy, and I think it goes back to what you and I, again, have talked about in the past, and it was refreshing to finally hear a politician in British Prime Minister uh, Theresa May make the comment that they've got to go back and relook at their counterterrorism, their anti-terrorism strategy. And until you get a strategy that has got political support and then you appropriately resource it with the men and women and the tools to do the job, and then most importantly from a, a Western perspective, we build a legislative and rules-based framework around it, there's not much that our existing security apparatus can do. So the fact that the British are looking at this thing, you know what, we have to change our approach is finally, for me, a refreshing message to hear from the political level. And I really wish here in Canada we could have the same type of dialogue about how do we empower the appropriate whole-of-government approach to get in front of these issues and stay in front of them. So this is, to the best of your understanding, this isn't going on in Canada at present. Well, it, it is going on, but again, we, we are playing catch-up. So don't get me wrong, we, we are fortunate to live in a tremendous country it is a rules-based society. We have the law enforcement, the intelligence, and the military operating within the constraints that the government of Canada has asked them to operate within. But the reality is, to get in front of, of these lone wolves, these small cellular, either mass murderers or terrorist networks, means you need to empower the law enforcement, the intelligence community, and I would argue the special operations community, to do um, maybe preventative arrests or discussions with individuals who are spreading extremist points of view. And right now, that is a legislative legal problem that I can just imagine on the left and the civil libertarians are starting to pull their hair out when I say something like that. But the reality is, civil liberty, prosperity, safety, and security are not mutually exclusive domains. In the West, they are all interlinked. So this is not a civil liberty or security conversation. It's a civil liberties and security, safety, and prosperity conversation. Yeah, and Colonel Day, that is going to be driven by the people of Canada. 
the politicians will have to follow. If there's a reluctance to approach this, if there's a reluctance to set aside political correctness, the people of Canada will make that very, very clear to the politicians, and they will have no choice but to follow. Well, uh, and I'm not convinced, quite honestly, that the people of Canada um, understand the, the gravity of the situation and understand what needs to happen because, you know, using the, 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 the current language around fake news, we are having a hard time in, in the West in having an informed and non-emotive discussion about how do we secure ourselves and make ourselves safe and prosper in the 21st century. We have a very hard time having that conversation because sometimes the uninformed are putting out opinions to the ill-informed that are in some cases knee-jerk reactions which are not allowing those that with the knowledge to get on to do what they need to do. That's frightening. The uninformed influencing the ill-informed. That's a that's a dangerous combination. Colonel Day, you, you have a, a company, uh, Reticle. Tell us about what it is you're doing at Reticle, and are you engaged in uh, uh, advising private organizations on the security matter? What do you do with the com- at the company? Yes, yeah, so at the, with Reticle, we've got a bunch of um, networks of former national security subject matter experts. So whether that is individual security, like you said, for private individuals, public corporations, or uh, private corporations, we offer training and advice to those folks to allow them to live and prosper, if you will, in the 21st century. We, we do some cyber work. We do physical training. We do driver training. We just tell folks how to survive uh, if they have to be traveling. And uh, we do security audits. We do a number of different things. And, we, uh, and the other side of the coin is we also do some experiential uh, opportunities, teaching folks how to safely handle firearms, for example, or, or, or their vehicles, or again, how to, how to move through a third world. Yeah. Important at this time, at this particular time, as people become increasingly nervous, which is understandable, in the minute we have left, what would you advise the normal person who may be feeling vulnerable to do in the short term? Well, what I would suggest in the, in the short term is just to be aware of your surroundings and not to look for ghosts under every rock, but just, just to be aware when you're moving through 21st century environment and specifically those spots that are known as soft targets, like we've seen concerts, uh, um, public events of any sort. If something just doesn't seem right, just be vigilant and then be looking out if something was to go wrong, what are my avenues of escape if I needed to escape immediately? or to get cover if I had to gain cover immediately. Colonel Day, thank you so much for the time. And what's the web uh, website for Reticle? Uh, the Reticle website, uh, yeah, www.reticle.ca. And, uh, Roy, thank you very much for being on your show again. Now, always good talking to you. It's, uh, it's reassuring. Thanks, Colonel Day. Okay, have a great day. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer for Joint Task Force 2, and that's considered in the special operations community globally. Our Canadian JTF-2 is considered to be in the top two or three in the world. And um, Colonel Day has uh, this new company that he started, uh, R-E-T-I-C-L-E Reticle. Back to the issue of terrorism and uh, the London attack. The last time I spoke with Dr. Christian Luprecht, professor of political science and studies at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the Donald Laurier Institute, was the uh, day after the Manchester attack. And here we are again, just two weeks later, uh, Dr. Luprecht talking about another vicious assault in London. Uh, I'll ask you the same question that I just asked the former commander of JTF-2. Are you detecting a pattern are Islamist attacks on a steady pattern of increase, or is it coincidental? Well, I think it's too small for us to draw that sort of inference. But the fact that the threat level has been severe for more than three years now in the United Kingdom uh, suggests that, uh, indeed, at least the risk pattern has not changed, and if anything, at least certainly elevated temporarily after the Manchester bombing uh, when the threat level was raised to critical. So... In that sense, there's certainly a pattern on the risk side, um, whether there's a pattern on the actual attack side, that then also depends how many of the foiled plots you found. Now, there's, of course, 18 foiled plots in the last year and a bit along the United Kingdom. Those are only the openly known plots. If you add to those plots that never surfaced because they were disrupted 
um, before they got to the media or before um, these individuals were in any way other able to risk the public. Uh, now you start to get into numbers where you could say, yes, potentially there is a pattern here, but it, the means, of course, change among each of these attacks. So this is, while yes, it's the third major terrorist attack in three months, this attack is different from what we saw um, in front of the parliament buildings and it's different from what we saw in Manchester. And that makes it so difficult for security services uh, because uh, if, if there's not one consistent way of individuals uh, banding together in one consistent way of ha- carrying out these attacks. Are security services doing what they really should be doing, or are they being hampered by, in the in the main, by politicians who, as you pointed out the last time we spoke after the Manchester attack, you said their politicians are essentially interested in re-election, and so if they find a, a clever phrase that we'll all stand together and we will not fall, and this is what we want to believe, and this is what we do believe, and this is what our history says will in fact happen, but is it, do the security services have enough leeway to do what they need to be uh, doing, or are the politicians holding them back? So, look, I think that's a really good question. This is an issue that came up in, in Germany, in the context of Berlin, where governments that tend to be more on the social democratic side, uh, oftentimes, especially law enforcement, doesn't necessarily feel that the government will have their back if they have to make difficult decisions that might then require a minister or a premier to step up and defend the decisions that uh, law enforcement made. Whereas I think Theresa May has uh, all along sent the message, and she did so, so again when, I mean, there's the famous quote that enough is enough. I think there's a clear signal to law enforcement and the intelligence services that I will have your back in whatever decisions you're going to make. Because, of course, if services don't feel that the politicians will have their back um, and there's then blowback as a result of an arrest or a warrant that perhaps was issued on, uh, on, on questionable grounds or so, uh, then inherently security services will always um, err on the side of caution. And if they err on the side of caution, then that means they can't necessarily be as proactive as I think much of the population would expect them to um, after you have uh, as many deaths as the UK has had in three months from three major attacks. It's frustrating, extremely frustrating for people to hear, oh, we had that person or we had those people on our watch list, on our radar. We contacted them, but then we talked to them and they sort of slipped, if not off the radar, then down the scale of importance. It's frustrating for people to hear this, particularly when innocent people lose their lives. So when the Prime Minister of Britain says enough is enough, and if they have a specific number, and I've heard 3,000 in the UK that they have on a watch list that are potentially imminent terror threats, are we going to be returning to a time where internment becomes not only a possibility, but a reality where society says, look, you are too much of a threat, so we're going to lock you up? So, look, I think you're asking a really interesting question. And this is really ultimately a question of where we can we push the bounds of what is legally possible in a rule of law democracy. If you think of this as concentric circles, in the center we have events that are clear terrorist events, um, such as what we just saw. Then we have events that we've said are like terrorism. So, for instance, if you give money to someone or you give a weapon to someone and they care at a terrorist attack. So those ones are easy. What becomes much more difficult are, for instance, administrative interventions. So we, we remove your passport, for instance, so you can't travel, or other types of preemptive interventions, such as, for instance, you know that somebody might be up to with something with their car, so instead of, but you don't have enough evidence, so you pull them over and you try to find a reason to take their car off the road. And in Canada, we have this very innovative but controversial tool uh, that was expanded with Bill C-51 of... Uh, conditions of recognizance and peace bonds, where we essentially tell people, we think you're up to no good, but if you agree to the following conditions, then you can remain free. And these conditions can be anything from um, having your whereabouts monitored 24-7 to not going on the Internet, to not going a certain distance from your house, to not interacting with certain people. And this appears to have proven fairly successful. And that's the challenges that we run into, for instance, if you think about the, uh, the example that I always like to cite here is the Orlando shooting where somebody was clearly known repeatedly uh, under investigation for being a high risk, but there's no 
legal mechanism in the United States to try to place someone uh, like that under conditions that would likely inhibit that individual moving, um, preventing them from moving uh, from thought to action. And so I think what we will see different democracies wrestling with a lot more is, I mean, we're not going to have large-scale internment, but I think there's going to be a lot more experimentation legally. What sort of conditions uh, will the law allow us to impose on people who are high risk so as to make it very difficult for them to carry out their acts? And in this particular case, had we had conditions in place that would have not allowed those three individuals to associate, would no attack have been taking place? Difficult to say, but perhaps the attack would have not been uh, quite as severe in the consequences. Um, and if security forces only need to uh, train their weapons on one individual instead of three and trying to figure out who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, which is always the challenge, of course, when you have people out in the street with heavy arms that they make sure that they don't shoot the wrong people, mm-hmm. um, then that might have been at least one way to mitigate uh, some of the impact of this attack. I would imagine there, and, and I know this, I don't have to say I would imagine because we've heard the reports, there are people in this country now who are free to move around in our society, who are considered a clear threat to the peace of our society, who are considered a clear threat to participate or enact a, an act of terrorism. And these people are, are not, they're not stopped. They, they may be, there may be some roadblocks in front of them, but there's nothing really to stop them from committing such an act, um, are we failing? I, I, I know this is part of what your, your previous answer, but are we failing before anything takes place? Can we, could we today, based on what we've seen in Europe and what the threat reality is globally, and particularly in Western democracies, could we preclude anything from happening in this country today? Can we preclude a likely event from happening by today taking some people off the street? So, look, people always make this out as a, as a black and white issue. And, and what I've lobbied for is we need a, need a much wider toolkit available to uh, intelligence and law enforcement services. And so you'll remember, uh, under the discussion of C-51, one of the most controversial elements is what's commonly known as disruption, what is uh, known in the bill as the threat mitigation mandate. Right. In which... so. Security services, law enforcement, intelligence can only do what we as a society legally no, I get that. enable them to do. No, I get that. So, so we need, as a society, have to have an open conversation about what sort of powers are we prepared to put in the hands of our security services. Do we have, in about, in a, Christian, in about 30 seconds, do we have the time for this conversation? Or does there have to be decision-making taking place by the people we pay and pay well to make decisions to protect our society and say, this may not be what we personally or philosophically agree with, but we know it's necessary, so we're going to do it. In light of what we've seen after Manchester, in light of what we're seeing now after London, where these people were known, I would come back to the fact that the disruption mandate that we have in Canada, that all the people who criticize it so severely should think very carefully because that mandate has become integral in this country to preventing acts to be carried out um, uh, that are that are terrorist acts. And so I think this is precisely the sort of latitude with which we need to enable the people who are mandated with keeping us safe as individuals and as a society. I always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College. Joining us from London is Winnipeg, Global News Winnipeg reporter Zara Premji. And um, Zara, thank you for the time. Where were you in London last night when this terror attack began? Um, last night, I was probably about 15 minutes away from everything at another district where all the clubs and bars are. So, I mean, when we heard that was happening, we wondered if our section was going to get hit next. And and when and how did the news reach you? How does news travel about this kind of an attack? Um, I think in this generation it's the same in every country. Phones and I actually, obviously, having an international phone, or having a Canadian phone, rather, I wasn't connected. So I had friends who suddenly their phones blew up and everyone just sort of stopped in the restaurant for a moment and started reading their phones. You could see everyone's heads were down just trying to understand what had just happened. So it was news 
felt like uh, time stood still in that bar and suddenly some decided to leave some decided you know what we we need to continue with our evening but my group definitely said uh, we just didn't feel comfortable staying anymore it was too scary to stay there when we thought you know we're in the same sort of an area we're in an area where there's clubs restaurants bars young people out on a Saturday night we don't know for the next target yeah was there any uh, official response were there authorities that started to arrive in the area of London that you were in that were providing advice on where to go what to do just as a precautionary measure no actually we were expecting that but we were surprised to see that we didn't have any authorities coming our way we think all the authorities were sort of sent to the area of London Bridge and Borough Market so quickly that there was really no one in our vicinity at that point but then when we did leave and we took the back roads and the alleys to get to the tube, we did see a heavy police presence on the tubes, making sure people knew where they were going, getting out of all the different areas and homes safe, for sure. Zara, how has public opinion been forming itself and shaping itself in the hours since the attack? I read quite a few tweets this morning, and I just noticed, as the morning was going along for us here in, in eastern Canada, uh, I noticed that uh, the uh, level of emotion and maybe the level of anger coming out of the UK on Twitter seemed to be rising. Is that what you're experiencing there? Yes, definitely. I mean, there's two sides of it. So that's what we're seeing. And I've also been seeing that in social media. I've been seeing that as we've been walking around. Everyone's talking about it. But I think the other beautiful side of things is that London is a city that no matter what has happened, they've had three major attacks since March, and they're still pushing forward. We walked all around um, London Eye today. We walked all the tourist spots, Buckingham Palace. There were a lot of people out there. So in a sense, people are not letting this stop them. So the uh, stiff British upper lip, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And, you know, we actually just got back from walking to Borough Market and uh, the London Bridge. We wanted to see how far we could go. And there is still police tape up outside Borough Market. There are flowers now starting to come out. Uh, there's also, I could kind of see on the floor, obviously the scene hadn't entirely been cleaned up as there's still uh, the police officers going through stuff. So there was glass on the ground. There was some garbage tossed around. It's just, it's an area that seems a little bit untouched from uh, last night. What's the uh, the interaction between people like, um, you know, London is a, a very diverse city. Are people uh, as friendly with each other as you would have maybe seen them two days ago, or is there a shade of suspicion starting to starting to appear? I'd kind of say it's 50-50. I've, I've been to London a few times, and I've never really found anyone to come up to me and say hello and talk to me and get to know me like you would in Winnipeg. But uh, over here, I don't know if that's really changed, but it does feel like people are more cautious. I was telling someone earlier that I didn't see a lot of heads down in phones. It seemed more like people were paying attention to where they were walking, what was around them. Mm -hmm. It seems people are happy to be out, but they're still very cautious about their surroundings, us included. And how is the uh, enough is enough statement by Prime Minister Theresa May reverberating? At this point, I don't know that anyone really thinks enough is enough. I mean, I know that police were on the scene in eight minutes yesterday. I know that that all happened. But at the same time, everyone here is just saying, we don't know what's next. I mean, you can say enough is enough, but how are you going to actually put that into action? Right. A lot of people, I think, are, at least from the friends I was with last night that are from England, they're losing confidence in the system, and they don't know what's next. Many of them said, luckily, we don't live in London. We're happy that we live on the outskirts, and we don't intend to move to the city. And in the 30 seconds we have left, will you be changing your behavior? Will you uh, still go out and have a good time as you would have prior to last night? Or does last night... It, it, sort of shade things for you? I think my my day-to-day -day is proof that I won't let it change. My family and I walked all over the city. We walked all the way to Borough Market where everything had just happened. Are we nervous while we're doing it? Yes. Are we questioning it? Yes. But will we keep doing it? Yes. Good for you. Zara, thanks so much for the time. Good talking to you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Zara Premji from Global News Winnipeg on The Roy Green Show. Yesterday, after I spoke to the health minister, we spoke with Catherine, who is struggling, as you heard, who's been screaming in emergency wards for help because of her pain, her chronic massive pain. And what do they do at the hospital? They close the door so nobody can hear her. Well, I read to the minister 
the email that I received from Morgan, who joins us now on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Morgan, it's good to speak with you, and I read your email correctly, didn't I? You did, yes. So as you're listening to the Federal Minister of Health, who wanted to come on this program, and according to her press secretary, set me straight on what I was conflating, as far as information was concerned, what did you get from the Minister of Health? What's your reaction? You heard it yesterday? I know you heard it yesterday and heard it again today. Yeah, well, as I said to you earlier, I yesterday I listened to it and it was just, it was depressing. I mean, her words ring so hollow. Uh, she's saying one thing to you and then doing something completely different to the rest of us. That now today, hearing it again, it just made me angry because, I mean, she's giving you politician speak, but this is my life. You know, this is my life, my partner's life that, that she's messing around with. And uh, you can tell I'm a little upset here, but I just, I don't even know what we're going to do, um, we as in chronic pain patients in general, because a lot of us just can't live without our medication. It's just not possible. So, Tell us about uh, the condition that you're, you're living with. Yeah, it's called CRPS, chronic regional pain syndrome. It's pretty rare. Uh, it's neuropathic pain, so it affects the nerves in your body. And it sends uh, some really severe pain signals throughout whatever part of your body is affected. Um, It's supposed to be the most painful chronic pain disease that we are aware of. Uh, It's supposed to be more painful than having something amputated, um, more painful than childbirth. And it's 24-7. It never goes away. So I've lived nearly 10 years in unrelenting pain. Um, And even with medication, with opioid medication, I can get my pain down to maybe, on a good day, a 6 out of 10. Wow. I rate pain on a out of 10 scale. Uh, but without that medication, I'm, you know, 10 out of 10. I can't function. I can't bathe. I can't feed myself. I can't do anything. 6 out of 10 for most people. People who don't have a familiarity with pain 24 hours a day. 6 out of 10 would have them screaming. In the beginning, it did. <laughs> um, for the first... Uh, First, definitely first few months, um, my my family, uh, I still spoke with them back then, uh, would be concerned because I'd just be sitting there trying so desperately not to move, not to even breathe, because that would cause an increase in pain. Um, but you get it's amazing what the human body can get used to, um, and you adapt to it, and you get used to it over years and years when it just doesn't go away, so... And the pain splits up families. It does. It does. Um, uh, uh, Probably about a year, two years in, something like that, uh, all the doctors that I was seeing couldn't tell me what was wrong with me. Uh, And so they started on the, well, you're faking it. You're just looking for drugs. You are, uh, you know, you just don't want to work. You're being lazy, that kind of stuff. And I ended up losing a career that I absolutely loved, ironically, in the medical field, Um, But, uh, you know, and then my family started believing these doctors because if the doctor is saying it, it must be true, right? So um, I I ended up losing my family over it. And yet doctors, and I've talked to a few, doctors have said that they feel that these guidelines, and the minister said they were just guidelines, they feel that the guidelines are rules, and if they break the rules, they're in serious trouble. And I had one doctor say to me, if I have six patients who I'm prescribing more than 90 milligrams of an opioid to per day, I'm placed mm-hmm. on a watch list. Another doctor said, I can't afford to lose my license to practice medicine. It took me 12 years to get the, the license. I have a family to feed. I have a responsibility to my patients. I'm stuck in the middle, and the government's placed me there. Yeah. Are you a drug addict? Me? No. <laughs> I would love to be able to just live my life without pain and without medication. That would be my ideal. That's what you're addicted to, living without pain. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that is your right. It's a human right. Yep. <laughs> so, when you, so when you talk to doctors and you explain to them what you're experiencing and you have a patient's chart and they, they know what, what their, the record is, the pain that you're living with, in 2017, how differently, and you and I haven't rehearsed any of this, right? We haven't had no, a, not at all. We haven't talked about what we're going to say on the air, not one word. In 2017, 
uh, and I don't know the answer to this, are they treating you differently than they did in 2014 or 2013 before the government started to point their knobby little, stubby little finger at chronic pain patients? Well, it's been a progression. Um, I know that when I first ended up in the uh, system looking for some relief from this pain, and I tried everything else, as I included in my my email, um, there were, you know, you you couldn't go to a doctor and say, I have pain, and walk out with a a prescription for opioids. That just isn't the way things worked. They wanted to try everything else first. Um, If you had a good doctor, they were quite understanding of this. If you had a poor doctor, sometimes... Uh, they would accuse you of being a drug seeker and that sort of stuff. Um, I think in my case, because I was so young when this whole thing started, I was just in my late 20s, um, there is a perception that young people don't have this type of pain. So I think that I got a little more of the, you must be looking for drugs, than uh, someone who would have been older starting out. But uh, yeah, nowadays it's much, much worse. And it's gotten worse over the years. When you, when you listen to the minister, when I mentioned you and your situation, did you get the sense that she's going to do anything at all to create a, a reality where the doctors will make life easier for you and people like you? Do you think she cares a whit about you? No, I don't think she cares at all. Um, again, I think it was, it was just empty words. Uh, she was saying what she want, thinks the public wants to hear, expressing sympathy for someone that obviously has not had the best of times. And uh, I don't think she intends to do anything. And you tried, let's just go over this again, you tried many different um, opportune or possibilities to, or at least what the doctors said, were possibilities to, to deal with your pain. You tried, and I went through the whole list with the, uh, oh, with yeah. the minister. So you tried, because they're always talking about, well, they have to try different things. They have to try different options. You tried them all. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when I just say that I tried antidepressants and anticonvulsants, I would have tried probably a dozen different antidepressants and five or six different anticonvulsants. And, of course, that's in, like there's other things that I did as well that I just forgot or didn't have room with the email to put. But, I mean, like I've done yoga. That's the first thing everyone says, oh, you should do yoga. I've done it. Um, you know, I've done swimming and aqua therapy and everything. Like if you can think of it, if somebody ever has suggested it for chronic pain, I've done it. What are your prospects for the rest of your life? Um, well, this disease has no cure, uh, and it doesn't have a very good prognosis. Uh, chances are it's going to continue to spread through my body. Um, I recently had a doctor, the one that I kind of credit with uh, saving my life, who said, no, she needs to be on opioid medication. Uh, he declared that the pain was intractable, so that means hard to treat and never going away. So I'm 38, and I'm expected to live a relatively normal lifespan and all of it will be in pain. If you are able to obtain the opioids that you require, and opioids has become a dirty word, and it shouldn't be. There should be no stigma. It is a medication. And as I said to the minister, if, an opi- if a pain patient needs opioids for the rest of their lives, what's the problem with that? But if, <laughs> yeah. you, are, if you don't receive what you need, if you are sh- shut off, if you're cut off by the system, uh, I, I don't want to go here, and I've tried to stay away from it, but you mentioned it in your email. You mentioned the yep. suicide word. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of two choices that I have, because without medication, without something that helps with the pain, and like I said, I've tried all of these other things that have not worked, and were also intolerable because of the side effects, but without something for the pain, I lie in bed. And it's not like you know, fun lying in bed where you can watch TV or play video games or read books or whatever. I can't even focus on anything like that because the pain is so intense. So all I can do is suffer. Uh, you know, if I, was, if I was a dog, they would put me down. But because I'm a person, I don't have that option. And chronic pain patients aren't covered under the new assisted suicide laws. So it's something that I would have to take into my own hands. That is so disturbing to hear, and I would hope that every doctor, every politician would hear your words, understand them, and take action for you, not against you. And I would hope there's a lawyer somewhere listening to this program who will contact me, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, and you will say, as a lawyer who cares about people, I will help chronic pain patients if they form an association 
and I'll take their case on pro bono. So if you're that kind of lawyer, that kind of human being, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, get in touch with me, and I'll have you in touch with the pain patients because they need to do this. They need to form an association, and they need to take on the government, and they need to remind the courts of what's happening to them because they are targets. The chronic pain patients, chronic pain patients, your fellow Canadians, are targets. And minister, if I'm saying anything wrong, come back. And to the Ontario Minister of Health, don't duck us. Morgan, all the very best, and I'm going to stay in touch with you as well. All right. Thank you very much, and thank you for being such a passionate advocate on our behalf. Uh, We needed somebody in the media to just recognize this problem and say something. I'm on your side. A lot to all of us. I'm on your side. But I can only help you with media. I can only help you with media. You guys and gals have to get the association together and fight them in the courts. Yep. We've, we've, in the last couple of days, it's something that we've been talking about, a few Good. of us. Good. So I'll keep you updated on Please that. do. Please do. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you very much. We'll be back in touch with you. Well, except this politician, because I uh, like him. So do most Canadians, the most popular Politician, the most popular premier, Brad Wall of Saskatchewan, uh, talked to the premier two days ago about Quebec wanting into the Constitution. I talked to him about the United States getting out of the climate accord. And I talked to him about Justin Trudeau and the carbon tax. Just listen. Premier, let me ask you, first of all, what's your view of the president of the United States pulling the U.S. out of the U.N. climate accord? Well, whether one supports or, uh, the move or opposes the move, uh, assuming they're uh, American citizens and voting in, that, in their uh, elections, here the bottom line for Canada is that they're our number one trading partner, but they're also our number one competitor. And, and, and by the way, in terms of that competitiveness question, um, I'm not sure the U.S. being in or out of uh, the Paris Accord uh, is the sort of the number one concern for us as Canadians who have to compete with Americans for investment, job-creating investment. And what I mean by that is that in April I was in Washington on a trade mission and we met with a, a number of members of the cabinet and cabinet-level pos- uh, positions, uh, including Secretary Ross, including the Secretary of Energy, the new head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. The bottom line is this, in or out of Paris, there will be no carbon tax uh, in the United States. Moreover, they're backing off on the methane regulations that Canada and the United States have agreed to, which haven't got the attention of carbon taxes, but I can tell you uh, are just as concerning uh, in terms of Canada's energy sector and our ability to compete for investment with the U.S. So the the concern I had uh, pre uh, the president's announcement on Paris remains and that is that our federal government seems to not be seems to not be very attentive to the fact that we are creating a massive uh, competitive advantage potentially by by our inaction or our willingness to stick with carbon tax and stick with regulations a, a disadvantage for our sector vis-a-vis the u.s consider this roy All, a number of canadian companies or at least companies that were invested in our energy sector that frankly the large big oil let's call them that supported the carbon tax announcement in our neighboring province of alberta and the national federally imposed carbon tax uh consider what what a lot of them have done since they've left <laughs> they have basically uh exited the canadian sector for the permian uh or for other plays around the world where there is less quote-unquote policy risk Amazingly, this country, because of regulation, the latest, by the way, just here yesterday uh, or earlier this week, was Apache. And they specifically cited uh, the increasing difficulty to operate in Canada, and I'm paraphrasing, but due to regulations and tax policy, government policy. So we have created policy risk, quote unquote, for these companies. And even the ones that were asking for a carbon tax, and this kind of is frustrating, I'll tell you what are leaving for the Permian, for Texas and for Oklahoma, for the shale play, where, by the way, there will never be uh, a carbon tax, whether they're in or out of the Paris Accord. And yet the federal government, Mr. Trudeau, uh, continues to make the case that the carbon tax is a financial and economic boon for Canada. You know, it's it's sloganeering, and I I don't want to be... I don't want to be gratuitously... uh, uh, critical of uh, of how the federal government describes their carbon tax, but I mean, I, it's one thing to say these things to uh, that are sort of, I, I would say, 
talking points or slogans. It's another thing to point to where there might be any justification for them, where there might be some evidence that this will be the boon it's supposed to be. Consider, Roy, that this country of ours is home to the third greatest oil reserves on the planet, that we are a very large northern climate, uh, inter- uh, large geographical country, uh, and we have a northern climate. Uh, the industries that we have here in significant measure that have helped pave the way for a great quality of life are trade-exposed industries, and that means that they're far from their markets, and there's, and there's an, a cost to get those industries developed, uh, if they're the extractive industries or, or even major, some of the major manufacturing. There are, uh, there's a certain amount of carbon intensity that comes with where we live and what we have and what we do well. How in the world can that country, trade exposed as it is in our major sectors, how in the world can you describe a tax that will disproportionately hit those very sectors because they they rely on hydrocarbons or they're trade exposed? How can you describe that as some sort of economic boon? I mean, I just the the evidence doesn't back it up. Moreover, we know in our country we have a longstanding example since 2008 of a carbon tax in place at a at a level that's uh, that's higher than the initial level of the federal of the Trudeau imposed carbon tax, and we know this empirically that emissions have gone up in that province. They've increased in British Columbia. So, not only are we risking our economy and putting ourselves to competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis the U.S., but we're all we're doing it in the name of a policy, in the pursuit of a policy that hasn't been that's been demonstrably ineffective in reducing emissions. Our position is we should be focusing on technology. Um, the, the developing world is building coal. The U.S. is moving towards coal. Japan has moved back to coal. So we have leadership in our province to clean it up. At Boundary Dam 3, CCS uh, is the technology that's working here. Uh, we burn coal cleaner than natural gas as a result. It's the first-generation technology, so it's not the, uh, the most inexpensive technology, but the point is let's invest in the next generations of it and actually do something that will reduce emissions uh, rather than attacks that might make ourselves feel good about our 2% of world emissions, but risk the economy and actually not reduce the emissions that we want to in the first place. Premier, you mentioned British Columbia. There's a new government about to uh, unveil itself, the combination of the New Democrats and the Greens, and uh, this places perhaps the issue of pipelines in some doubt, which will bring Mr. Trudeau back into play to a certain extent. Of course, the uh, federal government moving some of the departments of the National Energy Board from Calgary to uh, to Ottawa. What do you make of the change of government in British Columbia, and how will that affect the energy um, reality in this country? You know, Roy, I've said that as a government, we're going to look at uh, other uh, outside extra Saskatchewan, extra provincial developments through the lens of what's good for the province and give credit where it's due. And so let me just say that the Prime Minister's response to the election of the the potential election, and, we, and I think there's there's uh, some questions still to be answered, but the potential new government, uh, the, the coalition, de facto coalition of the Greens and the NDP, the Prime Minister has been um, uh, stalwart and uh, I, I would say very strong in defense of the federal approval and the federal jurisdiction to approve Kinder Morgan. So I want to give him full credit for that and I can thank him publicly on your show. That's the right position to take. Having said that, there's all manner of sand that can be thrown into the gears by a provincial government on a project like this, whether it's permitting or perhaps through BC Hydro, which is a crown in that province. So I'm very worried because, of course, there's not Saskatchewan oil to, to be in that pipeline. But any time we get Canadian oil to the t- to Tidewater, it means we're reducing the discount uh, at which Canadians have been selling their oil, uh, principally and exclusively in North America, where we get the West Texas price instead of the much higher, sorry, not much higher now, but uh, always a little bit higher and sometimes a lot higher world Brent price for crude. Moreover, here in, Reg- in, in my province in Regina, there's about 900 steelworkers jobs at Everaz, at a plant that will supply the pipeline for that project when it gets going. And so we're watching it very carefully uh, and concerned about the election of this government who said they've now, they're going to try uh, to kill it. Part one of my interview with Premier Brad Wall of Saskatchewan, part two after this. Part two of my interview with uh, Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall. We continue with the carbon tax and then 
Quebec. Always Quebec. Premier, can we go back to the carbon tax for a moment? Um, what is Saskatchewan's long-term plan or longer-term plan? There has been a great deal of talk about, and you've mentioned it, uh, a court case. Um, I spoke a few weeks ago with an Australian member of parliament who echoed exactly what your concerns are and then underscored that with once we realized what the concerns were and once we realized how negatively the carbon tax was affecting the Australian economy, Australian families, Australian businesses, we did away with it in 2014. Uh, what is the, uh, maybe the medium to longer term objective or the, uh, what is the, what's the path Saskatchewan is choosing? Well, as you know, we, uh, we uh, have uh, released a white paper on the environment and on climate change specifically, and therein you'll see uh, very specific goals around moving to 50% renewables at SASC Power, uh, and we're underway uh, with that effort right now. Uh, we want to continue to lead in technology that actually does something about the CO2, and rather than taxing it or shifting it or tapping it and trading it, that can actually take it out of uh, the picture completely and uh, and, uh, and and keep trans- keep coal, for example, as possible as one of the transition fuels as the world wants to cleaner and cleaner energies all the time. So <clears throat> we've never... Uh, We've never said that our province was not interested in the uh, in the effort. In fact, on a per capita basis, through through CCS, we've invested more than any jurisdiction in the country. But with re- we don't think the carbon tax is effective for the reasons I've already mentioned, uh, and so we're going to be challenging the federal government in court. Um, it's a little clearer now as to the case they're going to make. Not perhaps it's, uh, we don't have the specificity of the federal proposal to uh, to to really be able to react through our Ministry of Justice, but we're going to be ready to do that when when more specifics are available and we've already been working in terms of preparatory work for the for the case and uh, we're going to see them in court mr wall uh, the prime minister has expressed his regret i'll bring this back to the issue of the uh, u.n climate accord he's expressed trudeau has expressed his regret that the united states is uh, pulling its uh, support for the UN Climate Accord, but he's nevertheless the Prime Minister's already committed 2.6 billion dollars, taxpayer do- dollars, to that fund. Uh, do you have concerns about Canada's continuing involvement with the fund? More money being directed toward it, particularly with our southern neighbor uh, getting out of it and not having a carbon tax. Roy, we've actually in our white paper we've called on the federal government to invest that 2.6 billion dollars in Canada on technologies that'll actually help developing countries. And so, you know, uh, full disclosure, obviously, we'd like the federal government to use some of that 2.6 billion dollars to join us and companies like BHP Billiton at the CCS Knowledge Center in Regina, uh, and at uh, in Wisconsin Power in developing the next generation of tech of clean coal technologies. We've demonstrated that it burns cleaner than natural gas. We've demonstrated it's a viable option if we can get the cost down. And we know that coal is being built in India and coal generation is being built in China and the other countries that are in the developing world I've already mentioned. So why wouldn't we, if we have $2.6 billion for, to fight climate change, why would we invest it right here in Canada uh, with uh, in technologies that we are demonstrating already, that we are proving already, to get it to the next generation so that it's cost-effective uh, and... Uh, and will actually reduce emissions around the world in those developing countries. That's our position on the 2.6. One more question for you. Um, the Premier of Quebec, Monsieur Couillard, wants a national discussion on Quebec signing on to the Constitution, but he wants Quebec nationhood enshrined as well. Where do you stand on that? Uh, you know, the issue of, uh, of reopening the Constitution is an interesting one. And, you know, in Premier Quillard, we have a Federalist, uh, and I have enjoyed working with him at the Premier's table. Uh, he has been, uh, he has worked hard, frankly, to ensure that we have a, we have fewer barriers across our own country as we've, we've developed a new Canada trade agreement, the interprovincial trade agreement. Uh, and Premier Quillard showed real, uh, demonstrated leadership at that table. I, I have a lot of respect for, uh, for the work he's done and for his position as a Federalist in Quebec. Um, and I've said here publicly that if there's going to be some discussion of the Constitution, we need to put equalization and this arcane uh, and ineffective formula back on the table. Uh, we've had oil prices uh, off at around $50. We're in going into the third year of that. And the people of Saskatchewan are still paying a half a billion dollars into the federal program because of the formula. Meanwhile, provinces who have hydro resources, Manitoba, Quebec, others, 
uh, that hydro resource is not part of the calculation, even though we know it's very valuable in terms of exports and in terms of the energy profile of the country. So uh, there's much work to be done in terms of fairness in this country. And if there's going to be any constitutional discussion, Saskatchewan would want to see equalization as a big part of that. It needs to be overhauled. Uh, there is concern, and I've seen it from listeners' emails, particularly from the West, about the issue of Quebec nationhood. Yes, the transfer payments, of course, also being mentioned, but I'm also wondering whether this has the potential to create a, a, an alienation in uh, Western Canada, whether this these constitutional talks, we never know where they're going to wind up. We've seen that in the past. Whether it has the potential to create more problems than it has to solve. I don't think that, you know, when the Harper government moved to recognize uh, uh, Quebec, I forget the wording of that, Roy, as a, you, you might remember, but when the Harper government moved on that issue of we weren't sort of uh, leading the, the, the cheering section for it, but neither were we that opposed to it. Um, and uh, and I guess I can tell you that personally, this would be prior to my time in this job or even in provincial politics, I certainly had no issues with language in Meech Lake and language in Charlottetown. We might have saved ourselves a lot of headaches if, if as a country we could have done that, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me, but that's my that's my opinion. More important than the words uh, or how we describe each other, the arrangements that we have. I think the un- if there's a sense of unfairness in Western Canada. It does revolve a lot around transfer payments, but it, it, it revolves also around how we're going to work as a country. I'd like to know that some other province, whether it's the provinces that that uh, that, that cover the Energy East pipeline going to Atlantic, the Atlantic Coast, or BC, I'd like to know that they're prepared to understand the importance of a federation of landlocked provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan being able to get their products uh, to the world. That would be more important to me than the semantics, perhaps. I'll call them around, you know, how we what we call each other within the federation. I'd like to see an equalization formula that's fair to Western Canada than it has been. Uh, so those changes, that part of federalism, it's much more important to me. Premier, thank you so much for the time. All the best.